I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. Chapter 17 and 18 describe <clears throat> the fall of Babylon the Great. Chapter 17, the emphasis is on the fall of religious Babylon. In chapter 18, the emphasis is on the fall of the commercial political Babylon. She's depicted in chapter 17 as a harlot, adorned in riches, committing immorality with the kings of the earth, riding on the beast, the Antichrist. And the emphasis there is on her as a religious system, sort of a conglomerate of all the world's religions, the final full fruition of the ecumenical movement. She stands in direct contrast to the church, which is depicted in Scripture as a virgin. And so she is the false church, the Antichrist bride, if you like, in contrast to Christ's bride. And as we come to chapter 18, the focus is more on her as a commercial political system. The focus is on her as a city. In fact, if you notice the last verse of chapter 17, it says, And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And the focus in chapter 18 is on her as a city, a city which is the seat of power reigning over a world kingdom. That's conveyed throughout chapter 18. There we see that she's got musicians, craftsmen, merchants. She's importing and exporting. And so she's a city. Chapter 18, notice verse 10. Uh, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon. Verse 18, And they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? Verse 19, And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. The religious Babylon falls at the midpoint of the tribulation. It's described in chapter 17 and verse 16. It says, And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. And so the, the harlot, this religious system, comes riding on the beast. At the midpoint of the tribulation, it's actually the beast and the ten kings who are associated with him, that ten kingdom confederacy that will actually overthrow this harlot, this religious system, and destroy her. So her end comes at the midpoint of the tribulation. Many commentators believe that this city of Babylon will actually be destroyed later in the tribulation. Uh, there are several things that indicate that. The first verse in chapter 18 says, after these things. And so uh, the, the harlot is destroyed, the religious system is destroyed. After these things, we find the city actually being destroyed. In chapter 18 and verse 9, it says, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament. Now, the Antichrist and the ten kings associated with him are actually the ones who destroy the religious system. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist actually sets himself up as God. And, and stands in the temple at Jerusalem as God. And so the kings actually hate her and destroy her, but in this second half of it, in chapter 18, we see the kings weeping over the loss of the city of Babylon. And then in chapter 18, it really takes us up to the very end of the tribulation because in chapter 19, we will find the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the religious side of Babylon, it seems, is destroyed at the midpoint of the tribulation, 
and this political side, this commercial side, is actually destroyed later toward the end of the tribulation period. Now, an interesting and I think rather intriguing question arises at this point, and that is, will Babylon, will the city of Babylon be rebuilt? And some people say no. And the reason for saying no is back in Isaiah chapter 13. And if you just keep your finger here in Revelation and go back to Isaiah 13, there's a prophecy given here about Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13. <clears throat> and actually, verse chapters 13 and 14 are all about Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1 says, The oracle concerning Babylon. And so the prophet Isaiah speaks concerning Babylon. And notice what he says down in verse 19. He says, And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will the shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there. Their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. The hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. And many people go back to that passage and say, you see, when Babylon fell to Cyrus in 539 B.C., the scripture says she will never be rebuilt. So Babylon can never be rebuilt. But if you look a little more closely at Isaiah chapter 13, you'll find that Isaiah is prophesying on the short range, but he is also prophesying far into the future. In fact, look at Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And then he says, It's coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Notice verse 10, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. He says, he's talking about the, the day of the Lord and he's talking about the time when the, when the uh, sun and the moon and all will, will be darkened. In fact, that same verse is quoted by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, looking toward a future day. And so Isaiah is not just talking about the near future when he's talking about Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. He's also looking to the time of the day of the Lord. And if we had the time to do it, you could look in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14 and also in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 because they're parallel prophecies. And you'll see that much of the imagery that's presented in those two prophecies is used in Revelation chapter 18 to describe the fall of Babylon. And if you will look at history, you will see that Babylon's fall to Cyrus wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, Babylon didn't cease to be inhabited after Cyrus took the city. In fact, Cyrus came in and actually beautified the city of Babylon. And in fact, 200 years after Cyrus, Alexander the great actually lived in the city of Babylon. In fact, if you look in your New Testament at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, there Peter closes 1 Peter and he sends greetings from the church in Babylon. 
And so as you look at the, the fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians, it wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't a circumstance where the city was wiped out and nobody ever dwelled in it again. We see throughout history people still in Babylon, still there. And so Babylon never had a sudden perpetual fall. And on the basis of that, we can look ahead and say that that fall spoken about by Isaiah and Jeremiah is the fall that we read about here in Revelation chapter 18, the fall that's going to happen in the tribulation period. You say, well, why the city of Babylon? I mean, why that city? Well, if you go back in Scripture, you find that Babylon holds a very prominent place, not only in history, but also in Scripture. It's mentioned in no less than 18 books in the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's referred to more times than any other city except Jerusalem. It's the first nation mentioned in Genesis and the last nation mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's the site of the Tower of Babel. That's where it started, Babylon. It's the, the seat of the rebellion of Nimrod. It's the place where idolatry had its birth and where it flourished. It's where Hammurabi reigned and wrote his laws about 1800 B.C. It's the place where God called Abram from to be the father of the Hebrews. It's the place where King Nebuchadnezzar reigned as a world re ruler about 600 B.C. and where he built the Hanging Gardens which was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's the city that's always been the antithesis to Jerusalem and the place where the Israelites were taken into captivity in the time of Daniel. It was a great city. Historians tell us it's, it had walls 300 feet high and nearly 40 feet wide that encircled the city in a pattern 60 miles long. And outside of those 40-foot-wide walls was a moat, and rising out of those walls at 60-foot intervals were 250 watchtowers. It was a great city. It was a great man-made city, man's great accomplishment. And you, you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's vision back in Daniel chapter 2, he was in Babylon, and he had a vision. And he had a vision of a man standing, and the man had a head of gold, he had a chest and arms of silver, he had a belly and thighs of bronze, and he had legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. And Daniel interpreted that dream, and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom are the head of gold. Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, the, the arms and the chest are going to be the country that overthrows you, the Medes and the Persians. Silver. And then the, the country that came after that was, was Greece, which represented the bronze belly and thighs, and then the great world empire that came following that were the legs of iron, which was Rome, and then the iron mixed with, with clay that made up the feet are that ten-kingdom confederacy that's still coming in the time of tribulation. What's interesting is to look at history and see that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over Babylon or over the Babylonian Empire in the city of Babylon. Cyrus came next and reigned over the Persians. You know where he reigned? He reigned in Babylon. And then the next was Greece, and Alexander the Great reigned there. And Alexander the Great was actually in Babylon planning to make Babylon his capital when he died in 323 B.C. And so it's not a big stretch to think with the scriptures that we have that perhaps the coming Antichrist 
will actually make his residence, his headquarters, once again in the city of Babylon. Now, that's rather intriguing to me given the present posture of our world because Babylon is located in the country of Iraq. It's about 35 miles from Baghdad. And I've read reports that Saddam Hussein is very intensely proud of Babylon's former glory and that for the past 10 years he's been spending vast amount of money restoring many of the ancient structures of Babylon. He's restored the southern palace of Nebuchadnezzar, the processional way, and the Ishtar gate. And Iraq itself has risen as a world power rather remarkably in recent years. Militarily in 1990, Iraq was rated as the fifth most powerful nation in the world. Politically, she's viewed as the leader of the Arab nations. And economically, with the takeover of Kuwait, Iraq holds 20% of the world's known oil resources. And she now possesses one of the world's great harbors for importing and exporting, which we're presently prohibiting. And if you listen to the military analysts, their biggest concern is not the present threat of war. Their biggest concern is what will transpire if we don't go to war because then we'll have to face Iraq several years down the road and she may be more than we can handle. It's a fascinating day that we live in and I suggest that you keep your ears open to what's happening in the city of Babylon. Meanwhile, let me show you the final chapter of Babylon's storied history. It's in Revelation chapter 18. And I want us to look at six things relative to Babylon's fall. The declaration, the admonition, the explanation, the lamentation, the celebration, and the termination. And I'll go over those slower. First of all, the declaration. We see it in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And here we're, we're introduced to yet another angel in contrast to the many we've already seen and in contrast to the most recent one we saw in chapter 17 and verse 1. And we're told several things about this angel. First of all, we're told that he comes down from heaven. This is an angel from God because at this point in time, all of Satan, Satan's angels are restricted to the earth. And so here comes an angel from God coming out of heaven. Something else we're told about him is that he has great authority, which tells us that God is not hesitant to delegate authority. And we've seen that throughout the book of Revelation, the authority that has been delegated to angelic beings. And then thirdly, we learn about him that the earth was illumined with his glory. He shined so bright that he lit up the earth. You know, I think about Moses, and Moses in his fallen humanity went up on the mountain and saw just the passing afterglow of God, and his face shone when he came back off the mountain. Here's an angel that comes out of the very presence of God, and he comes down to the earth, and his glory just lights up the earth. And not only does he illumine the earth, but not only does he illumine it with light, but he illuminates with information as well. Notice verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, Babylon will perhaps be a city in the time of the tribulation, but it will also be the center of a worldwide kingdom. And it will represent the, really the personification of Satan's evil system. And this angel comes down and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And that's a prophecy that was given actually back in Isaiah chapter 21, 8. And it's now fulfilled in the time of the tribulation. And he says it's fallen, and then he goes into some details about it. And what we see in these details in verse 2 is that she has become the dwelling place of demons, the prison of unclean spirits, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. She has fallen, and she has become literally a ghost town. Because all that's left are demons and unclean spirits, which were really behind the activities of Babylon all, all along. But now the city's fallen, the people are gone, and those demon beings are still there. And he adds to that that there are birds there. Now, that may be symbolic, because if you go back to the parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, he told the parable about the mustard seed, and he said the mustard seed grew up into a great tree, and the birds came and nested in the, in the limbs of it. And the birds represented Satan and his demons and their activities. Remember the, the, the parable of the sower where he sowed the seed and the birds came and ate the seed? The birds represented Satan and his activities. So it may be symbolic of Satan here, but probably, more likely, it's sort of uh, expressing to us and illustrating to us how desolate the city has become. Because if you remember the, the verse we read in Isaiah 13, 21, speaking about Babylon, it says, their houses will be full of owls and ostriches will live there and hyenas will howl in their towers. And the idea is that, that the people are gone and the city's so desolate that it's going to become the home of wild creatures. And then this angel reiterates her sins again in verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And he logs her sins. We already saw them back in chapter 17 and verse 2. Her sins are to intoxicate and impassion people. And that's what Satan's system has always done and is doing today. She gives men all the things that will not satisfy. Wine, passion, immorality, riches. And now she has nothing left to give, she has fallen, and she is desolate. And that's the declaration in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, we see the admonition. It's in verse 4. <clears throat> and I heard another voice from heaven, and that other voice is God. God speaks out of heaven. We see that by the admonition. Notice what it is. He says, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. God gives an admonition from heaven, and he's speaking to my people. And even in the tribulation period, God is going to have his people. We've seen that. He's going to have tribulation saints. And the message to them is pointed. He says, come out of her. Come out of her because you reap what you sow. And if you sow her sins, you're going to reap her judgment. 
God said the same thing in Jeremiah's day. When he prophesied the fall of Babylon in Jeremiah 51.6, he said, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment. He said it in Jeremiah's day. He said, Babylon will fall. So flee from Babylon. He says it in the time of the tribulation. Babylon has fallen. Flee from Babylon. And he's saying the same thing to us today. Because this system of Satan is that system of Babylon. And God is calling us as his people to come out of her. In fact, let me show you a verse. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Keep your finger here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Just one of many illustrations we could use. Verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. We're not to be bound together with unbelievers. We're not to be tied into this world in that way. He says, come out of her and be separate. That's the call to us today. It was, it was a call in Jeremiah's day. It's the call in our day. It will be the call to God's people in the day of the tribulation. What's the message for an individual who's in a false church today? Come out of her. What's the message to a believer today who is, who is courting the world system? Come out of her. That's the message in Jeremiah's day. It's the message in the future, and it's the message to us today. We're to be separate from this world system. And then a third point in this passage, we see the explanation in verses 5 to 8. And these verses explain to us the nature of Babylon's judgment. And we see that that judgment is based on set principles. In fact, we can determine just in these few verses four principles of God's judgment. Number one, we see that God's judgment is sure. Notice verse 5. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, that's a little bit of a play on words. Because Babylon was the place that started with the Tower of Babel. When all the people of the world got together and tried to build a tower that reached to heaven. And God says, your tower didn't make it, but your sins did. They have piled up and they have piled up and they have piled up and they have reached heaven. I haven't forgotten. I remember your sins. Judgment is sure. And then there's a second principle here, and that is that God's judgment is proportionate. And that's in verses 6 and 7. And we see here that God's judgment is proportionate to two things. Number one, it's proportionate to our judgment. Notice verse 6. Pay her back even as she is paid... And give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. Pay her back even as she has paid. However she has judged other people, you just take her cup and judge her in that proportion, only double it, says the Lord. Now, that's a principle we find other places in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, For in the way you judge, what? You will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured 
to you. That's what the Lord does with Babylon. Take her cup. Take the way she has given, given it out. Take the way she has judged other people and just take that same cup and we'll double it. It's proportionate to the way you have judged other people. Secondly, it's proportionate to our indulgence. Notice verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. To whatever degree she lives for her own glory and for her own luxury, you give her that same degree of torment and mourning. She set the proportion for God's judgment by her proportion of indulgence. And so God's judgment is proportionate. Third principle. God's judgment is comprehensive. Notice the end of verse 7. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. This is Babylon. She says, I sit as a queen, I'll never be a widow, I'll never cry. And she says that in her heart. But God's judgment is comprehensive. And God doesn't just judge the actions, he judges judges the heart. And he isn't influenced by somebody's positive thinking. She's saying, I'm a queen. I'll never be a widow. I'll never see judgment. I'll never cry. And God's judgment is comprehensive because he sees that sin and he'll judge it. And then fourth principle we see is that God's judgment is swift. Notice verse 8. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. When it comes time for God to judge, he doesn't mess around. He judges her in one day with fire. Now, we don't have the time, but I'd like for you on your own to turn back to Isaiah chapter 47 and read that chapter. Because it, it, it completely describes what we're, what we're seeing here. Because there we find Babylon, and Babylon is saying these same words. She's saying... I'm a queen, and I'll never be a widow. And God intervenes and, and brings destruction on her suddenly. She's saying, I'm a queen, I'll never be a widow, and God says judgment is going to come suddenly because God's judgment is swift. So in dealing with Babylon, God's judgment is sure, it's proportionate, it's comprehensive, and it's swift. That's the explanation. Fourthly, we see the lamentation. That's in verses 9 to 19. And three groups are seen lamenting the fall of Babylon. The first group is the kings of the earth, verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. What's the response of the governments of the world? They're going to weep and lament. But do they come to her aid? No. Verse 10. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. They stand at a distance fearing their own doom, and they weep over the loss of Babylon. A second group laments the fall of Babylon, and that's the merchants of the earth. Verses 11 to 17. Notice verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. What's the reaction of Wall Street and the business community? They weep and mourn over the fall of Babylon. Why? Because their sales are down. 
You know, it's not a matter of some personal interest here, some sorrow over the loss of the people. They just say, we got nobody to sell to anymore because Babylon was our chief buyer, and now Babylon is gone. And uh, then in verses 12 and 13, we have a list of all the products that Babylon purchased. And uh, what's significant about this list of products is that they're all luxury items. Notice uh, verse 12. They bought costly ornaments, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, costly ornaments. Then they bought costly clothes, fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet, and then costly furnishings, citron wood, articles made of ivory, very costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, costly furnishings. Then in verse 13, we see they had costly perfumes, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense, and then costly foods, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, and costly animals, cattle, sheep, and horses, and costly vehicles, chariots, and then it adds to that list, and this is literally what it says, the bodies and souls of men. And isn't that the real commodity of the world? Babylon's buying all these costly things, but what, what the world system really deals in is the bodies and souls of men. And so they had the best things money could buy. They had the things that men sell their souls for. And in one day, it's all gone. And then verse 14 is a very reflective verse. It says, And the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. What a sad verse. To build your life desiring something that's going to pass away. And that's the nature of Babylon. That's the nature of this world system he headed by Satan. He drives men to find satisfaction in things that are going to pass away. And when Babylon falls, he says, the fruit you long for has gone. Reminds me of the, the story of the man who died and went to hell. That's probably not a good illustration to use, but I'll use it. Uh, the fellow was an avid golfer. And he died and he went to hell. And uh, when he got there, he was kind of impressed. He looked around. You know, they had a great golf course. And uh, they had some excellent, you know, uh, uh, clubs. And he was looking at all this. He said, wonderful golf course, kept very well. These great clubs. He said, I bet you can drive 400 yards. And he went out to the edge of the golf course and he asked one of the fellows, he said, this is, this is wonderful. This is all I dreamed of. The fellow looked at him and said, the hell of it is there are no balls. And, you know, that's really one way to describe hell because it, whatever you build your desires around are going to be unfulfilled. You're going to have everything but what you really think you want, and you're not going to be satisfied. And that's the outcome whenever you pursue temporal things. They pass away. And this world will see an illustration of that when Babylon falls. And notice the response in verse 15. The merchants of these things who became rich from her, they rode her coattails to riches, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And the merchants of the world can't understand. They're saying she, she had everything. She was wealthy. How could she fall? And she does in the matter of an hour. And then there's a third group that laments the fall of Babylon, and that's the merchants of the sea. And we see them in verses 17 to 19. It says, for, in verse 17, And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And they're weeping once again because the loss of their source of wealth. And so with the fall of Babylon, we see the kings of the earth mourning, we see the merchants of the earth mourning, and we see the merchants of the sea mourning. That's the lamentation. And then fifthly, we see the celebration. It's in one verse, verse 20. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. The fall of Babylon, the leader of the world system, causes weeping on the earth, but in contrast to that, it causes rejoicing in heaven. Quite a paradox. And it all really depends on your perspective. Because if you're living for the temporal things of the world then the fall of Babylon is tragic. But if you're living for the eternal things of God, it's a triumph. Because heaven knows that the judgment of Babylon, Satan's counterfeit system, sets the stage for the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ. And so they're rejoicing. That's the celebration. And then sixthly, we see the termination. Verses 21 to 24. Not only will Babylon fall, but her fall will be final. Verse 21, And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. The message is communicated visually and verbally. Visually, a great angel comes down, takes a stone like a millstone and throws it into the sea. And then verbally he says, this is the way Babylon will be thrown down and she won't be found any longer. And that's sort of a takeoff on what happens in Jeremiah chapter 51. If you read Jeremiah 50 and 51, it prophesies the fall of Babylon. At the end of chapter 51, Jeremiah writes down his prophecy. He gives it to a guy named Sarahiah and he says, you go to Babylon, read this to the people of Babylon, and then take the message, tie it to a stone throw it into the Euphrates River and say, that's what's going to happen to Babylon. She's going to sink and rise no more. And here we have the fulfillment of that in the time of the tribulation. And just to emphasize Babylon's termination, notice verse 22. It says, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. And so he says of Babylon, there's going to be no music, no workers, no food, no light, no joy in Babylon anymore. 
And then he gives a twofold reason right at the close of the chapter. He says, For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Number one reason, because Babylon deceived the nations. Babylon lifted up merchants to be the heroes of the world. That's a lot like our world, isn't it? We lift up businessmen and men who make money to be the heroes. And he says, you've really lifted up merchants to be the real ones who are exalted in this world rather than Jesus Christ. And then secondly, he says in verse 24, in her, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Babylon killed the saints. Babylon lifted up riches and Babylon killed the saints. And that's really the same thing that Satan's system has done all along and is doing today. Loving materialism and hating God. That's really the, the message that permeates the system all the way through. Love materialism, exalt riches, hate God, and get rid of his people. And so in this chapter, we have sort of a solemn picture of what's going to happen to this world system headed by the city of Babylon. This world system in which we live now is just the seed of that system that is to come because we live in a system that's marked by materialism and marked by demonism, marked by a hatred for God and John reminds us in Revelation 18 that it is soon to be judged. And I hope we will discern the admonition in verse 4 that we will hear God's voice saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her, her sins and that you may not be judged by her plagues. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this picture of the end of really the world's system, the world's kingdom apart from you. And Father, it's a solemn reminder of, of what's going to happen to this world we live in. And yet it's a, it's a challenge to us not to place our desires and, and live for this kingdom, but that we might live for your kingdom and pray that your kingdom might come. And Lord, I pray that we might be challenged to, to walk that, that line to be in the world but not of the world and to be real testimonies to the fact that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And we just pause in this moment to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.